0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network as they talk with women in compliance
1: who are making a difference. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Great Women in Compliance, sponsored by Corporate Compliance Insights and hosted by the Compliance Podcast Network. I am thrilled today to introduce you to our special guest, Sabrina Siegel. She is a third sector integrity risk and compliance advisor and the host of the Tolerable Risk podcast. She's a master evangelist of objective centered risk assessment, and I can't wait for her to share with us her aversion to risk matrices. Welcome, Sabrina. Thank you so much. I'm
0: really excited
1: to be here and talk
0: with you today. And I have to say, I, I've never been called a great woman in anything. So I'm, I'm really flattered to be on the podcast.
1: Well, that's overdue. You are certainly a great woman in compliance. And I can't wait to talk about how you're a great woman in risk management too today. But before we get to risk management, I know you recently celebrated a one-year anniversary of your very own hugely successful podcast called Tolerable Risk. So listeners that may not be aware of this fantastic resource, please tell us more about your podcast. Sure,
0: so tolerable risk is a labor of love. It's something that I really enjoy doing. And it came out of my search for authoritative or even just helpful information about how to manage risk in the third sector. I'm a lawyer by training, don't hold that against me. But when I started transitioning more towards compliance and risk management, like anybody else, I said, okay, what's the best practice? What are the experts doing? What's really working well? And I went out into the world looking for things and I couldn't really find anything. I said, I'm not an expert, but maybe I can help to start frame the conversation. And so I said, why not start a podcast? It's a great excuse for me to reach out to really interesting people and to learn while I'm doing it and share some of that learning sector. The Tolerable Risk podcast was born. And yeah, we had our first anniversary in October of uh, last year. And it's just been wonderful. I think I've got almost 40 episodes that we've uploaded so far. We bring on an expert to talk about a particular area of risk, so HR or data privacy intellectual property physical safety and security but we come at it from the angle of charities and nonprofits small to medium-sized organizations low to no resource working in complicated and complex environments and and I've got a lot of really good feedback so far people really enjoy it and it's a very niche area but i've I've been really happy with with the feedback so it is it is continued uh, well yeah, I yeah, love
1: it. Sorry. No, I'm a fan. And please let our listeners know where they can find it. Like, how, can, how do they find tolerable risk if they want to listen in? It's on most of the major podcast platforms.
0: So Google, Apple, Spotify, I think. If you just go into the major platforms and type in tolerable risk, and you've issued up. you should be able to find it.
1: Excellent. Look, I love the idea of being a creator, not just a consumer of what you need. So just so inspiring to know that you decided you needed some benchmarking and you went out and Gave yourself the platform to find it. It's brilliant. I actually have a really silly story like that. I, when I was dating in London <laughs> and I wanted to figure out how I could go speed dating. And instead of actually just going speed dating, I started a speed dating business. It's the thing you do. You're like, how do you go large or go home? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Innovative women. Here we go. There we go. So I love that. Look, look on, on the... Question of benchmarking. Have you got any tips for someone who has only recently started as a podcast host and <laughs> no name's mentioned?
0: It gets easier. It does. When I was first editing my first couple of episodes, I was up late, late, and I needed to make every pause perfect, and I needed to make every transition perfect. And then as you go through and you listen to more and more episodes, you get a sense of where it really does need to be perfect and then where you can rush along and keep moving. Interviewing people becomes a lot easier. You get a sense for that temp that you want and yeah I've added a few bits of technology to my repertoire but not too much you don't have to spend a whole lot invest in a good mic and the software that I I was just using Zoom for a while and I was using Descript the edit and Descript now has a partnership with Squadcast which actually makes recording really easy especially if you're recording from a place with low bandwidth like I I was recording from Egypt and now I'm recording from Rwanda and it really helps make sure that you don't lose people or when, when the bandwidth drops yeah but you don't Mean a whole lot more than that and podcasting is for everyone it's it's fun wow. and it's easy and it's a great excuse to reach out to interesting people and ask them questions
1: never a true word my goodness that's what I get to do today and it's funny I always think you get into your own head about how you're going to be and how you're going to perform but the one thing I've realized pretty quickly is it's really not about me I have these magnificent guests and as long as I let them speak I'm good So <laughs> that's been my tip <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's it's really great. I love it. And I can just reach out to anybody that I see that's interesting and I can say, hey, I have this podcast. I'm interested in learning more from you. And everyone loves to hear themselves
1: talk, right? So give them an opportunity to talk. Haha, uh-huh, now my secret as to why I invited you. <laughs> now, you just mentioned you are joining us from beautiful Rwanda in East Africa today. Our listeners probably don't know that my mother was actually born in East Africa in Uganda, and her mother in Kenya. So, I'm very fond of a very special connection to that part of the world. But, why are you in Rwanda and what are you doing there?
0: <laughs> I belong to an international development humanitarian assistance. Um, Team. so my partner is also in this line of work and so he's with the UN and so this is why we're posted here in Rwanda now so I'm thrilled to be here it's a beautiful country um, and it just gives me a great excuse to to see another part of the world and continue to do the work that I love to do and you brought
1: your family with you is that right you've got your children with absolutely you. I've got the kids with me too everyone's here everyone the cats the kids everyone's here what an adventure I can't I, I'm so jealous <laughs> and also in awe of how you do this. I think you only landed there a few weeks ago, so it's amazing. yeah yes. <laughs> it's amazing. yes it's amazing. When I first connected with you on LinkedIn, I noticed you you have a fascinating global career in compliance. I see that you were working with save the children in Cairo at that time. you've also got a deep experience across the globe working for NGOs in Jordan, Afghanistan, Italy, the UAE just to name a few. and I think you've also held several roles as a public servant for the U.S. government in Washington, D.C., which is where I'm sitting right now. Your podcast and your work is about the third sector. What is the third sector? Tell, tell our listeners what you do there. It's a great question.
0: So the third sector is essentially what you would think about charities and nonprofits. The private sector is businesses the government sector is government regulations, and the third sector basically picks up where those two sectors drop off. The third sector is really a gap filler. It's for where policies have failed or the private sector doesn't see any profit. And unfortunately, a lot of people fall through the cracks when those two elements come together. And so charities and nonprofits are created to pick up. Slack, And so the third sector is, is really not the private sector, and not the government sector.
1: Tell us a bit more about compliance and risk management in the third sector.
0: Sure. So one of the things I always like to bring this question as is because the third sector functions where the private sector you know, doesn't see value and where the government sector has failed, we are inherently working in a high risk environment. Whether it's doing elder care or trying to fight for good regulations against climate change or doing humanitarian work in a post-conflict environment, maybe inactive, active, the environments that third sector organizations work in are inherently high risk. People don't necessarily look at it that way. But if you think if it wasn't high risk, then the private sector would probably be there or the regulations the government put in place would probably have worked, or the support programs the government in place would have worked. So we work in the areas in the gap areas and these gap areas are high risk. And my point of view is that the third sector doesn't really have yet a good, strong approach that's fit for purpose for us. A lot of the risk approaches that you find out there these days are designed by financial institutions or oil and gas, petrochemical, aerospace engineering, things like that. They are very quantitative heavy. They can be quantitative heavy because they have the core data that they need to use some of those tools, Monte Carlo tools, Bayesian statistics, frequency analysis, things like that. The third sector is very qualitative. And I know people out there might listen and say, oh, no, that's nonsense. You can measure anything. And to that, I always say, look, if I want to run a child and maternal health program in Upper Egypt, how do I quantify the risks in that? There are some elements, sure, that we could quantify, but a lot of it is very dynamic. It's very systems-oriented. And again, because the third sector is functioning in these areas that are gap areas, that are by default high risk. We are trying to juggle high dynamic environments with shoestring budgets. As they say, we have caviar dreams on a ketchup budget or something like that. One of the things that I'm working on and I continually work on and the podcast has really helped me is developing more approaches for charities and nonprofits, particularly small and medium-sized charities and nonprofits. the big guys have resources. they can chuck teams at, at compliance and risk. but the small and medium-sized organizations who are genuinely serving underrecognized communities, this is all Greek to them is so it's Latin. And they either come at it really trying hard, but not really knowing where to start because they're taking some of these other approaches from other industries and trying to jam it into the charity environment. Or they get completely frightened and they just bury their head and they say, cross their fingers, and we really hope nothing bad happens. Neither one of those is good. What we need to do for our sector is come together and really develop things that are bespoke and work well for us. And I think I've done that in in some areas. There's always room for improvement. But risk management and compliance in the third sector is exciting. I, I really enjoy doing it because my point of view is, if I can support organizations to do this well, it means all of their programming is going to improve. If they can better recognize risk, if they can better assess risk, identify and manage it, No matter what kind of program they're running, it's going to be better. Whether you're running an education program, whether you're running an agriculture program, whether you're running the local animal shelter down the road, your programming is going to be better if you can do this well. And so I really enjoy this area because I see my work like a rising tide, right? It floats all boats, not just one or two different programs. Compliance is a whole other story. I'm happy to talk about compliance with donors and all that, but really, this is the risk approach that I have.
1: No, let's stick with risk approach. The risk approach. That's exactly where I want us to go. And it's funny as I hear you talking, lots of things are going off in my head. Firstly, yes, you've got deep experience in the third sector. There's a unique high risk and a unique unmet need. It's uniquely under resourced. Then I think maybe not so unique. The private sector probably resonates with some of those things too. There's lots of private sector organizations that feel uniquely under-resourced for the risk they're trying to manage. And so that's why I get so excited when I listen to you and I hear you and I read what you write, because a lot of what you're d- diving deep into in the third sector has massive parallel application in the private sector. And so as I sit in a private sector trying to make sure that I'm not overwhelming my employees, my leaders, my, my boards with quantitative data that just doesn't I'm going to say is not decision useful <laughs> and doesn't really move the needle. I am also looking for some inspiration when it comes to making it digestible, making it qualitative, making it move hearts and minds, making it relevant and fit for purpose like you said. Where there's high risk. And yes, we can talk all day about which risk is higher, but actually I think many of our listeners will resonate with what you've said. They're like, actually, I feel like I've got high risk to manage with no resources. Help me out.
0: <laughs> I think, I think I've received a lot of feedback,
1: particularly on the podcast, from small organizations, startups
0: and things like that, who have said, yeah, I've actually really received a lot of value from your podcast because low to no resourced environments are very similar to a startup business. And I can definitely see the overlap there. The the uniqueness that comes out of the third sector, though, is we have sometimes competing stakeholders. We have multiple stakeholders at certain levels where private sector would only have one. So let me give you an example. In the private sector, to simplify this, right, you have a widget and maybe you have a product or a service. You do some sort of improvement on it. You go to market you have your customers they buy it you take your profit you reinvest it or you pay your shareholders whatever but it's it's a pretty cyclical thing right you can say product purchaser your customer in the third sector we have this dynamic where we have our participants and beneficiaries right the people who receive the good or service that the third sector organization is delivering and we have the funders who are giving that organization the resource in order to deliver that good or service? So third sector organizations really face a challenge sometimes when they say, who is our quote unquote customer? Is it our beneficiaries and participants or is it the donor that's making all of these demands on us for reporting and all these compliance requirements? And sometimes those two stakeholders can be at odds. And this is where you see a lot now this talk about localization and decolonization of aid and things like that. Whereas donors were coming in and saying, I'm going to give you this amount of money because I want you to do X, Y, and Z program in this kind of fishery or in this area or in this region or whatever, or with this population. And the population there is, saying, we don't need that at all, right? That's not at all what we need. You're telling me that you're going to drill a well, but we know if you drill a well here, water is too salty, we won't be able to do anything with it. In fact, what we need are solar panels, but the donors just don't know we're going to drill. So you, third sector organizations are really sometimes in these very difficult positions that private sector organizations never don't know to face. Or maybe they do, I'm trying to think of an analogy if they have an investor that wants to take the company one way and they want to go somewhere else. But when you simplify it, it's quite complicated with these two stakeholders that third sector organizations have to balance. And private sector organizations maybe don't face that in the same way.
1: Yeah, no, I totally see it. But you're right. The analogy in the private sector is going to be the investor versus the stakeholder versus the employee. And we know we're trying to navigate that. What have you learned then through your practice that can help our listeners with that, with navigating those kind of tensions in the compliance or risk management function?
0: That's really hard. And that's one of the things that I'm starting to advocate for right now is engaging donors in a more diplomatic, right? But direct way. Because what as I unpack a lot of the layers around localization and trying to do be frontline led, you hear a lot of this coming out of major institutional donors right now. USAID has put a big thing on their website about working with more local partners, FCDO, the UN, the World Bank, everyone's saying local frontline. But when you actually peel back the compliance requirements and the compliance environment, they haven't really changed much. If you're a small organization, that's great. You're still going to have a pre-award survey with two auditors that are going to come to your organization and ask for 342 different things. And that's really overwhelming for a small organization. I think that if we genuinely want to have systems change in this area, the donors need to come to the table and be willing to move. Because right now they hold all the power. Let's talk about power shifting and all this. It's great. But they still hold all the power. They're still the biggest kid on the block. Um, now that being said, I did work with USAID for a while and I understand the pressures that they're under. For example, in the US Congress right now, you have a whole faction within Congress that would love nothing more than to shut USAID down because they don't see the value in overseas development. And so that puts USAID in a really tough spot, particularly around compliance, where if they have a big, you know, fraud problem or funding problem, or things like that, that faction of Congress is just gonna wave that around and say, see, look, this is why we should take their budget away. And so they're very sensitive to that as well. And I think over the years, these compliance requirements have just been layered and layered and layered, and they're very heavy for organizations. And now it's just the really big guys, the big INGOs, the, the bigger private sector organizations that can afford to fund these massive risk of compliance divisions along with their programs. For some of the smaller organizations, their compliance teams are bigger than their program implementation teams. Something's wrong with that. Something is wrong when we have that happening. That's not a good use of donor funds, right? We want to get funds out to the beneficiaries and participants. If you are trying to fund a team who needs to write reports every two weeks, is that really helping anything? Or is that what I like to call risk theater? Is that compliance theater?
1: Yeah, no, I love that self-reflective risk, risk-centred question, like coaching question. What should we be doing differently? Why are we still doing the things the same? And how can we be strategic and efficient with the resources we've got? Um, I know that's really um, near and dear to your heart when you talk about objective risk centred risk management and we're going to get into that it's one of my favorite topics I think one of the things you mentioned was diplomacy right you have to be diplomatic to, to navigate those tensions and one of the things I love about objective centred risk management is you're speaking in the language of those that have the objectives you're starting to talk with them about risk rather than at them about risk tell me a bit more about how you came to objective centred risk management and as I say you're the master evangelist of it I can't wait to hear your, your background in this I definitely want to echo what you said in the second, what you said about we don't want to talk at people about risk and
0: compliance. We want to talk with them. We want to put the challenges on the other side of the table. And we want to sit on the same side of the table as they are and say, think of us as an extension of your team. We all want to achieve this objective. We're here to help you. We're not here to slow you down. And that's really refreshing to a lot of people, especially when your typical risk and compliance office acts a lot like a typical legal office. It's the office of no, right? (laughs) And I just, that never helps anybody. So I second that. So how did I come to objective-centered risk management? I am, I'm a master evangelist, objective-centered risk management for the third sector. But my mentor Tim Leach is probably the master guru, master evangelist of objective-centered risk management. He developed this approach decades and decades ago now for the private sector. His approach is quite robust and has a lot of moving parts to it, all very valuable, all really centered on kind of his focus, is purpose, right? Board purpose, organization purpose. What is the purpose? What are your, again, for the private sector, high profit margin objectives and how do we then work our way up from that? So, when I was doing my research early on about what's the best practice in the risk sector, how what are people doing? I came across Tim's re- uh, writing and read a lot of his articles and followed him online and had an opportunity to just sit and talk with him and say, look, I'm trying to take what you're doing and put it to the third sector. What do you think about that? And we've had so many wonderful conversations and he's helped me out so much. And what I did was I took his approach and really simplified it. And I made it appropriate for small and medium-sized organizations in the third sector understanding what our pressures and our risks are. Um, And so I developed objective-centered risk management for the third sector. And exactly what you said, Emma, it focuses on what are we trying to achieve? It shifts the analysis away from... A risk register, just a long list of horrible things that may or may not happen. Risk matrices, which are a snapshot in time looking backwards. Risk appetite statements, which are not even worth the paper written on, right? It moves away from those things, which are very static and very linear. And it moves risk awareness or risk identification into a more systems-based approach as well as a dynamic approach. And the two things that I really think objective-centered risk management do well is, number one, ties your risk analysis. All the resources and time you're going to go into doing your analysis directly to the risk. And the second thing it does is it helps to directly influence decision-making. And so senior managers boards and trustees, and even just project managers themselves really like this approach because they can look at it. It puts the objective and tracking the objective at the center, not a long list of risks. Because organizations don't create themselves just to track risk. They create themselves to achieve objectives. So let's put that at the center and then let's identify not only our threats, but also our opportunities. Because that's the other half of risk management that I think we miss a lot. We miss out on a lot is we focus on the threats, but we don't actually focus on what are the things that are going to happen along our journey that will enhance our ability to achieve our objective. And for charities and nonprofits and probably small organizations too that have limited budgets, if you miss one of these opportunities along the way, you may actually miss that chance to double or triple your impact because you didn't think about it. Now, you're not going to think about everything. Right. But the 80 20, if you can have our 80%, you're going to be all right. And the other 20%, we can pivot and adapt and accelerate. But I love this approach because it's both the threats and the opportunities. And again, it puts the objective really in the center of the analysis.
1: Now, you've shared some fighting words here. You've been attacking risk registers and risk matrices and risk. Bring it on. Uh, Yeah, look, I'm sold on this because I've been following you and Tim for a while. But for our listeners, I want to break it down a little bit because, Mm -hmm. look, one thing that all risk frameworks have in common is the need to conduct risk assessments and do risk management well as part of the compliance programme. We know global risk frameworks refer to risk assessments, specifically the US Department of Justice has put out guidance on their heightened regulatory expectations around risk assessments and the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. These are things that are very familiar to our listeners. I'm sure many in our audience then are interested in how to conduct effective risk assessments that are defensible and decision useful, to your point. And they have really good intentions to do this hard thing, maybe doing it with some of the things that you've just said, huh, throw those out. There's Something that resonated with me on one of your podcasts with Rupert Evel was he said, let's talk about where good intentions meet operational reality. I love that. That really stuck with me because this is really a space where good intentions meet operational reality. So let's, make, if we may, let's break down. Let's go back to basics a little bit and break down what we're talking about here. What is objective centred risk management? We're going to go through that, and also what is it you say is wrong with the traditional way? What is the traditional way, and what is it you say that could be done differently? I hear you, you're talking about the third sector, but I really do believe that these principles stand squarely for the private sector as well. So let's let's. Let's dig in there a little bit. Let me start with the basic question: What are we talking about when we say the word risk? Sure. The definition of
0: risk that I use is the ISO thirty one thousand definitions: the effect of uncertainty on objectives. Full stop. It's six words, right? I like that definition because it focuses on uncertainty, which, in my world, uncertainty is dynamic. Again, it's not linear. Objectives, which is where I want to start, and it's also quite neutral. It doesn't. It's not negative or positive, right? It's not. Please tell us all the horrible things that might happen. It's the effect of uncertainty on objectives. And uncertainty can bring opportunities, but it can also bring threats. So that's the base
1: definition that I like. So the definition, just pausing there itself, centers objectives in the definition. We're talking about objectives, right? That's really helpful. So why is risk management important?
0: From a third sector point of view, when we look at risk, when I look at risk, I kind of look at the three main families of risk, reputational, financial, and legal. In the third sector, Financial and legal are important. They're there, but it's not like we're a big bank or a manufacturing company that has deep pockets. If there's a financial or legal problem, the charity will probably just fold. So the biggest risk we have is reputational. If if, If an organization's reputation is damaged, not only do you lose that connection with funders and donors, which is the first thing everybody thinks about, but what I also think about is you lose that connection with the under-recognized community that you're trying to work with, right? If your reputation is damaged because of a safeguarding problem or a child protection problem or a harassment problem or something like that, if you're going to lose trust with that community, you're going to lose access to that community. And then the whole purpose right, of your organization is, is going to be thrown into shambles. Risk management, in my view, is really important, not only to protect the organization from those very traditional points of view, but also to improve your programming. We want to make sure that we're looking out, we're scanning the horizon, we're thinking through where might some of these potholes and speed bumps or even brick walls be so that we can find a way to adjust around them and continue to deliver high-impact programs for the beneficiaries and participants
1: yeah no that makes abject sense and again just translating it to the private sector you want to meet your objectives number one one thing that might get in the way is a reputational hit i know traditionally in the compliance function we talk a lot about the legal and the financial implications but we now know with social media and active employees and active customers you're going to get your reputational hit a lot sooner than the DOJ is going to come for you so really important okay so given that it's that important who should be responsible for managing risk
0: the canned response is everybody, right? Everybody. Everybody's responsible for risk. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. You, you certainly have to have your champions and you have to have the people who are accountable. If we think about a racy matrix, you've got responsible, accountable, consulted, and informed. Ultimately, there has to be an accountable now. You, know, I mean, you can say your trustees or the board are ultimately accountable. Your senior management is ultimately accountable. For organizations that are large enough, they're going to have person or a unit that's there. One of the things on a side is I hate the titles. I hate chief risk officer or chief risk management director or whatever. If you put the word risk officer or director or something like that in a title, what you're communicating to everybody is that this person or this unit is responsible for managing risk. And we can put it all on them and there's something that we need to do. Okay. Right? And so I always Advocate that these teams or these individuals have an, an additional qualifier in It's risk support services or risk advisory team or something like that. Because what you're then positioning that risk team to be is exactly a support service, an advisor, somebody that the all the other teams, whether you're IT or marketing or fundraising or program development or widget design or whatever it is can call in and say, I want to make sure we're doing this the right way and I want to make sure we're not going to fall down a hole while we're trying to do it. So really positioning that team to be a support service Mm -hmm. and then making sure that they're building those bridges into every single other part of the organization's vital. I can tell you some examples from my own background is in the third sector right now, more organizations are starting to bring in these roles. Right? We're we'll bringing these teams as the compliance requirements from donors get heavier. It can be hard for these teams to integrate across the rest of the organization, especially if it's new, because sometimes these teams view the risk role or the compliance role as getting into business. right. And, and the way that I like to describe it is this is, I don't want to come into your backyard and pitch a tent, and I have no interest in doing your job. But in order for us to work together, my toes have to be slightly across your fence line. I have to be able to understand what you're trying to achieve, and I have to be able to give you guidance on how to do it. Now, a lot of times the risk and assurance teams don't have stick, right? We don't have the authority to make people do anything, so we have to work with our carrots a lot. Mm -hmm. And the carrots are providing value, providing valuable feedback, uh, and providing these tools and approaches that integrate into the ways of working that the organization already has. And so you may hear me say on some things or what I write, risk has to be built in, not bolted on. Yes. And this is one of the things that's really important. And one of the ways that I like to do it is I like to convince I can convince the organization to get rid of the risk matrix is siloed. It doesn't connect to anything. And or and, and teams hate these things because once a quarter they have to pull it down off the shelf, pull off, blow off the dust. Somebody argues about whether something should be yellow or red or a five or a four. And then they put it back on the shelf and never again is it seen until the next quarter. It's a waste of everybody's time. So when I introduce objective-centered risk management and what it actually is, is a project management tool. And I show the project managers the value of the tool because what they're measuring is their achievement of their objective as they move towards it, not some long list of risks that may or may not happen. They go, oh, wait a minute there's value here and it's even better if I can say and you never have to touch the risk matrix again just use this tool (laughs) so actually I can position it as I'm taking useless busy work off of their plate and that's a real win for me if I can do that she said it again useless busy work you heard it here first I, I challenge people I challenge people to show me I ask two questions I just say show me how it relates to objectives and show me how it influences decisions and I say Have you ever been in a senior management meeting where someone says, wait a minute, before we make this decision, we have to check the risk matrix. (laughs) Wait a minute, before we make this decision, we have to check the risk appetite statement. No, no one does that. Boards don't even do that. No one does that. Why are we doing that? And fine, the U.S. Department of Justice love those guys, but it's a tick box exercise. It's risk theater. If they go, okay, you have a risk matrix, great, check that box, move on. What I actually wish that they would do is ask for a little bit more qualitative analysis on, okay, How are you doing that? How are you coming to those numbers? How do you use this tool in your decision-making? Because that's actually where the rubber meets the road.
1: Yeah. And look, I can guarantee you that is what the regulators will be asking. They're no longer interested in a checkbox paper exercise. And they will be asking, is your risk management fit for purpose? And to to actually answer that question with some sense making. As I say, make it make sense right now. I love that. You've covered so much here. I want to just underline a few things. Firstly, let's add some value. Let's have risk management built in, not bolted on. I love that. Really like that. I'm going to look at that a bit more in detail in a second. You talked about The chief risk officer versus the coach or the facilitator or the enabler of risk management. I love that idea, the champion of it, thinking of ourselves as compliance as a service, risk management as a service. I think that's really powerful and something we can all be practical. We can take away from this. And I loved your idea of the measurement of the achievement of the objective. Again, what are our people interested in? Their own objectives. (laughs) Why not the language and why not bolt into that process? I was even just thinking about the, the toe over the fence. It's really interesting because you're right, a lot of our work is just trying to get to the fence. And you're saying, if you could just get the toe in and be relevant to what these people are thinking about, you might have much more success. And again, they may even, you may be crowdsourcing the risk management at source, right? You might be having them do the risk management if you can enable it. So no, I love all of that. Furiously taking notes as you speak again, another masterclass on this. And then we talked about compliance and risk being bolted on sometimes instead of built in. Also, it's often bolted on as an afterthought. So very late in in the day. And I think that might be why we get this perception of being the speed bumps, the annoying obstacles, the cost centre, as if we were designed to slow the motion down. So tell me a bit more about that. I'm very uncomfortable with that persona, that perception. I'm always trying to disarm that, want to make risk relevant. I know that's also one of Rupert's (laughs) talk tracks, making risk relevant. But how does objective centres risk management help us be bolted in earlier on.
0: This is a, it's a great example. I have a story that happened a few times where you're doing risk for an organization and the resource mobilizations like the fundraising team or the product design team, you get an email at four o'clock on a Thursday and says, we have to submit this proposal tomorrow to the funder, do a risk analysis. Mm-hmm. And this is the first I've seen of this proposal. <laughs> and I think part of it is, is the obligation is on the risk and compliance people to go out and do, as I say, a dog and pony show about what it exactly it is that we do, right? And how we can provide value. So the onus is on us to better communicate the value that we can provide. So I I put a lot of responsibility on us to do that. But then you also have to get senior management to sit down and work through these work processes and hold some of these other teams accountable and say, no, you gotta get risk at the table early because there's no way that you can do something at four o'clock on Thursday for a proposal submission on Friday. So part of another reason why I like objective-centric management is in order to do the analysis, you really need to have a cross-functional team sitting around the table and talking about the objective. So for example, if you are trying to achieve an objective where you are doing community mobilization around something like hand-washing, right? For water, sanitation, and hygiene programs you're gonna to need to hire community mobilizers. Now, if your organization is running two or three different community mobilization programs, they're gonna to have to hire local community mobilizers. Now, if you can't bring enough people on board in enough in, in the amount of time you have, that's a big threat. Now, the only way you're gonna know that is if you have somebody from HR who has that global view on what the organization has to do at the table. And a lot of times our support services are not at the table when these projects and programs are being developed. It's the water sanitation and hygiene technical expert who's there. It's the project manager who's there. Uh, Maybe it's the finance guy if they have a question about budget, but sometimes they're not. Right. The, the project team puts together this fantastic idea and then chucks it to finance and say, make it fit within this budget. <laughs> and, and then HR is not there, data protection and privacy is not there. Physical safety and security, for example, if you're doing a, a cash-based program and you have to distribute cash somewhere, they're all afterthought Integrating this objective-centered risk management analysis early on, making it a key step in your project or your program development is a forcing function to bring these other stakeholders around the table and start talking about what are we trying to achieve. Now, it's helpful for the project team to have clear objectives. I've found when I've worked with a lot of organization, that's part of the challenge too. You can't do objective-centered risk management if you don't have clear objectives.
1: Mm-hmm. That's
0: a whole nother podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's all that's not establishing objectives. Yeah. But what you find sometimes is that Different stakeholders have different objectives, even though everyone thinks that they're all on the same page. So that's almost like a therapy session. Oh, what? <laughs> what were you thinking? Oh, what were you thinking? It helps the organization because it brings clarity around the objectives, right, where they may not have had. And that's a threat and we don't have clear objectives. But once you have those clear objectives, you can then work your way through this analysis fairly painlessly. It's not really this complicated thing. And again, the other half of it is threats, but the other half is opportunities. And I can tell you, in the charity sector, we are big heart folks, right? We want to go out and change the world. They're so much more excited to talk about opportunities and ways that we can enhance the achievement of our objectives. They understand the threats, but really asking them to say, look, let's say you're running a literacy program and you only have space for 50 people, but 150 sign up, that's demonstrating that you have a lot more interest in this community. So, how can you quickly scale? What are some things we could put in place? Other partnerships? Could we have the printing vendor on standby if they need to print more materials, whatever, so that we could actually reach those 100 people, as opposed to just limiting ourselves? To them? What can we do? And they get really excited. Oh, yeah, okay, if this is really as, as well designed as we want, we're going to have a lot more interest in it. Okay. And it gets them really engaged. But that's risk management. But they don't see it that way. But it
1: is, it's risk management. No, that's so true. And you get me excited just talking about it. The thing is, we talk about partnering with the business. But what you're talking about is having a common objective. My objective is not to be a compliance person. My objective is to, to the, the objectives of the business, Right, I'm trying to help the business go along. I use it, I love analogies. I use the analogy if I say to our business partners, look, you get to decide what plane you want to build, how you build it, how high, where you want to go. What we're going to do is help you take off, fly, and land safely. So using that analogy, if you're not thinking about who's helping you take off, fly, land safely, tell you the weather, where you're going, you're probably less likely to open that route for your business. <laughs> and so it's a
0: great example. It's an excellent example.
1: Yeah, we turn into the office of a unlock. we're unlocking new routes and new business with you, rather than blocking slowing you down, making you feel risk averse. So I know I love that framing for you as well, in terms of get in there with the objective center It's messy, of course, it's messy, the objectives need to be clear, but be messy together, <laughs> rather than an afterthought. I'm with you. Now, look, the other thing I struggle with is when you get in the room, you get in that room early, what are you doing practically? Now, I'm going to say the list of horribles, (laughs) which is the risk register, can sometimes feel overwhelming. Once you get in the room, you've got to know what you're doing. What you don't want to be doing is talking about the weather all over the globe when you're only flying to one place. What you don't want to be doing is talking about all the types of fuel, even though you only really need to use one fuel. I feel, again, as risk officers or compliance officers, we sometimes come in with the enterprise big risk that we learned at law school or <laughs> well, the ones the DOJ are prosecuting right now and we're not making risk relevant to those objectives so tell us about the risk register and the list of horribles and how can we be more efficient and strategic there?
0: Well number one get rid of them uh, number two <laughs> I'll tell you so when I do training on objectives under risk management it's for charities it's about a two-hour training one hour is the fundamentals around risk Why is it important? But for objective center risk management in the third sector, I really only focus on two things. I focus on active monitoring and mitigation. And so if we frame our responses, that they can be one of two things. We can actively monitor the things that we don't have control over, or we can mitigate the things that we have some control over. We'll never have total control. So when we frame it like that, right, then that's the first hour to talk about that. The second hour is... workshop where i take real objectives from the organization i put them in the middle of kind of my flower diagram i'm happy to share with people and then we work through real objectives right and so the first concentric ring about around the objective is identifying threats and opportunities the second concentric ring around that is then taking those threats and opportunities that we've identified and identifying causes now some may have a linear cause some causes may be linked to two different threats some threats may have two or three different causes right this helps us start to do it's like a modified mind map but why i like this tool is again it allows a many-to-many connection as opposed to a risk matrix which is linear it's a one thing it's making the assumption that this thing will happen or not and not understanding the context that this thing is existing in, which is a huge problem with traditional risk uh, management approaches. So the the next concentric ring I was talking about is is our causes. We can map the many to many there. And then the final concentric ring at the outside is preparation steps. And What we do is say, what are our active monitoring or mitigation steps so that we can address the causes so, that we can either prevent the threats or enhance the opportunities so that we can achieve our objective. So, we start from the middle, go out, and then we work from the out back in. One of the nice things about the preparation steps, too, is this is how you can replace your risk appetite statement which, again, I think you should throw out, uh, if you take all your preparation steps and you price them, whether it's staff time, whether it's equipment, whether it's software, whether whatever it is that you've identified as a preparation step to actively monitor or mitigate, you then actually can operationalize your risk appetite statement because you have a budget. You go to your decision makers and you say, hey, guys, we did the analysis against this objective. This is the, these are the resources we need. Go, no, go. And it makes it real and connects it to decision making. It's not this nebulous statement that is written on a piece of paper that's written against a hypothetical fact pattern it's really against the objective that you want. And it gives decision makers real data to make a decision against, again, through a risk lens. You ask me, what do you prepare for when you go in the room? You want to make sure the people that are participating in this understand the goal of using the tool. And you also want to make sure that the right people are around the table. And then it's really more, you are in the role of facilitator and asking the right questions, prompting the right questions pulling people out of rabbit holes when they start to go down. But what I've found is when you facilitate these conversations and you have a cross-section of staff at the table, they tend to stick to what they think is going to happen. I do a little talk, too, about when we talk about risk mild to wild, right? Mild is the power goes out for three hours. Wild is somewhat wild. was a global pandemic, but now we all know that that's (laughs) possible that it could be something else. But if you look at your typical distribution curve, the groups that come together stay around the middle and and the other thing that's amazing is they come up with things that you'd never think of so i'll give you an example i I use the example of a child and maternal health program in upper egypt right so i did this this analysis with a team that was doing a program similar to that and one of the things that they flagged was in order for us to run this program we have to get local government approval every time we want to run an activity and they know who we are and they like us and, and, and we don't have a typical problem getting approval, but there's high turnover in that particular role in the local government. And so when we get a new government functionary, we have to go through the whole process again of introducing ourselves, making sure they, know they can trust us and all of this. And that adds to delay. Now, that wasn't something I had ever thought of before, but the teams who were working on the ground, they were like, this is real. So we put in place an active monitoring process. Right, So the project manager knew that the sub-manager who was responsible for that particular region was responsible for keeping an eye out and seeing is this local government functionary leaving or whatever? And if we got a whiff that was happening, we put our response in place. We had our deputy country director reach out, offer to come down, do a little show about who we are as an organization and why you can trust us for the new person, and it would reduce the delay right? Because we were monitoring that element. That never showed up on any risk matrix.
1: And it never showed up on any risk matrix because you didn't have the right people around the table putting it together. No, it's brilliant. It really is the truth of making getting real and making risk relevant. And you, the only way you can do that is if you lean into the specifics of the objectives you've got. I also just want to underscore something you said about getting the right people in the table. It's very tempting, isn't it? If I'm an anti-corruption professional, just to turn up at the table to talk about anti-corruption risks and forget that there's a holistic view right like anti corruption for flying a plane doesn't feel relevant it might well be right but we need to get the holistic view of the risk manager in the room and and really again ask ourselves those coaching questions what well, as you said what do we want to achieve? What might get in the way? And I do think the best people to answer that are the people, the risk owners that are flying the plane, or building the plane. They're Absolutely. The industry, the geography, the environment, the interactions and how important it is, for example, to know and have met, uh, had, had a long-standing relationship with the government official, for, for example. So mm-hmm. no. I I I
0: My mom's a doctor and one of the things that she, when she was in medical school, one of the professors that was teaching her taught her this, he said, if you talk to the patient long enough, they'll diagnose themselves. Yes. (laughs) And and that always really stuck with me because I think, yeah, if you, if we talk to our teams long enough. They're gonna identify, they know what the threats are. The problem is that risk and compliance have been introduced into the modern parlance as we're here to save everything, or we're here to fix everything, or we're the experts on everything. And we're not. I actually see my role again, much more as a facilitator, as a guide towards helping to guide the teams. They know the answers but they're not familiar with all the terminology that we use or any of these tools that have been developed that are really just coloring books, right? It's just like, (laughs) we make it complicated for no reason. And I think we get back to basics, we sit them down, we listen to them, we then take what they, you know, we're guides and we're also interpreters, right? We take what they're telling us and we put it in the format that might be necessary for DOJ or in my case might be necessary for a donor, but we also help them think through so they can achieve their objectives. One of the best things that was ever said to me about objectives and purpose management was I was doing the training and during one of the breaks, one of the participants came out to me and said, Selena this is amazing. Objectives of risk management isn't a tool. It's a way of thinking. Yes. A way and of- I was just like, you have summed this up, right? What we want to really share with the folks in our organizations is it's a way of thinking. It's like breathing. It's something that we, again, don't bolt on, but it's built in. And it's something that we want to do, not because it's this cumbersome process, but because we want to achieve the objectives and we're all on the same side of the table.
1: Now look, you know I'm sold on this. This is a way of thinking, but I also think you're disrupting a well-established industry. Bring uh, on, <laughs> yeah, bring it on. I'm with you. I'm with you, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that because there's a bit of ego here, as you said. There's a whole industry designed to get that quantitative analysis, use those tools, draft those risk registers, tool them, spend money on tooling. We have to disrupt the way of thinking of the professionals and the industry, and and there, hopefully, influence for good our business partners. Uh, and be full partners with them. But how (laughs) I always like to say you're doing something useful if you've got some haters and detractors in the comments fields. And I know you get some passionate threads (laughs) on LinkedIn and other places. So how are you navigating this as you and I I really mean this in January, I'm not being facetious. as you become an influencer in this space, and you're breaking ground here and trying to change people's way of thinking, and really quite frankly, going up against a well established risk management industry. How are you navigating that?
0: I, I don't necessarily consider myself an influencer. I don't even have a, a, a TikTok or a snappy gram or whatever the kids are on <laughs> okay. these days. If I'm an influencer, it's a very niche area. But look, I love the pushback. You know why? Because it, it just makes me better. It challenges my thinking. It highlights weaknesses, right? And it allows me to improve things. So I love it. The quantitative team quant versus team qual. One of the things that I've learned being in this sector is with, never the two shall meet, uh, which is unfortunate because I actually think that blended approaches are gonna serve everybody the best. But right. I think that to answer your, your original question is what, what do I do coming up against an industry that you was know, based on this? Yeah, you have a lot of consultants who have made their livings on doing risk matrices for organizations and that's fine except it doesn't really work. And, and more and more analysis is being done. People are writing books like Doug Hubbard and you know are, are writing books about why a risk matrix is nothing more than fortune telling. And what's interesting actually is I've had a lot of consultants reach out to me and say, Sabrina, I totally agree with everything you're doing. The problem is the client is asking for this. Mm-hmm. And I understand their point of view, right? I mean, if this is your bread and butter. Then okay, M- my response is, well, let's start to gently challenge the client the same way that I... I'm saying, I need to, you know, my sector, or we need to gently challenge our donors. I run into this a lot with boards. If I'm brought into an organization to recommend a different way of doing risk, sometimes you'll have a member or two on the boards and risk matrices are their security blanket. They just don't see any other way of existing with that one. And what I say is, look, I say, okay, if you trust me enough, and sometimes they don't, trust me enough, let me do objective centered risk management for a couple of quarters alongside your risk matrix. Okay, and we'll do both. Now it's more work for me, and it may be more work for the team, but we'll do both. And what we'll do each quarter is we'll ask the same two questions: How does each one of these relate to objectives, and how does each one of these support your decision making? And usually by the second quarter, they're like, Yeah, I okay, see the difference, right? It's <laughs> non-threatening, um, isn't it?
1: Non-threatening. So it's what like, oh, you've got. Yeah. Let's pilot this. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Uh, it helps if you find a champion on the board who is open to this and then sees the value in it. But yeah, you have people who just like to regurgitate what they find about risk matrices and red, yellow, green and impact and likelihood and all of that. And it's easy for them to parrot it back because it's been around for so long. But when you actually just scratch the surface... It's just, it's not really useful at all. I think the thing is, if you research the history of risk matrices, which I'm doing right now because I'm a big nerd and I'm also doing a doctorate in this area, they were originally created with a lot of quantitative analysis behind them. But because that quantitative analysis can be intimidating and confusing for people who don't understand it, it got watered down to this multiply your impact times your likelihood which if you really think about it, you're multiplying apples and oranges to come up with some number and These two items don't work like that. Okay. And, and so it's been watered down over the years. I think, look, if people are doing what the original intent of the risk matrix was, I think there's some value, but no one's doing that anymore. No one's doing that anymore. And so I think it's been corrupted and I think it's time to move on from it. And fine, come at me, I'm great. <laughs> but to go back to the quantitative thing, I, I think quantitative tools are great. The challenge in the third sector that I have is, in order for a quantitative tool to be really valuable, you need to be able to be putting clean and verified data into it. Now, I know again to mention Doug Hubbard, who's got a lot of uh, information out there about how to measure anything, how you can use quantitative methods, you can do Monte Carlo simulations with a small amount of data. That's great. But he also talks about how when you bring your experts in and you have to calibrate them and all this stuff, this is not something that the third sector has yeah. any idea about. Mm-hmm. I, while I respect the quantitative folks out there, and I do think that there are ways that you can measure things with a limited amount of data, I don't think the third sector is there yet. I want the third sector to get there. One of the projects that I'm working on um, is trying to develop something called a data trust, where organizations can feed their project management data into a neutral database that's run by a neutral third party and then we're able to query that database using some quantitative tools to get better advice and guidance on risk management around projects whether it's through a thematic lens or through a geographic lens whatever it is but the challenge we're facing right now is we just don't have the data to run some of those tools against project management we have a lot of data around impact, how many blankets did we hand out in the humanitarian crisis, how many girls do we have in school, how many, what's the literacy rate, how is that improved, things like that on impact. We don't have a lot on the operational side, which is where it sits, and so we need to improve that if we want to use quantitative tools.
1: No, look, I agree. What, what I hear you saying, and I, I, I'm laughing because I remember your comment in one of your threads poop emoji in, poop emoji out. <laughs> incredible, <laughs> incredible is what it is.
0: Like if I use my finger in the air and I say, this is the range for whatever, and I do you know, 3,000 Monte Carlo simulations on an Excel spreadsheet, that's great. And maybe my range will be in, but what's
1: my reliability? Correct. Correct. And look, again, you said it, the dusty risk register matrix was created by a couple of people in a room that probably weren't anywhere near the business. <laughs> it was probably some of us risk officers guessing at impact, guessing at likelihood, giving a number and then putting, like you said, colouring it in. So I'm with you. I look, I love it. I wish we could spend, well, hopefully we could spend more time on this anyway, but I know we're going to run out of time here. I did want to, you mentioned your doctorate. I know you were studying at the University of Bath, which is again, very dear to me because it's a stone's throw away from my hometown, Bristol in England. But I was going to ask you, you've talked a little bit about how it shaped your views on risk management, but what's the most surprising thing you've learned from your research?
0: Full disclosure, I've just started it. I'm in the beginning of the process. I think one of the things that is helping me this kind of more rigorous academic approach is helping me identify my positionality. I'm very passionate about this, as you can tell, and I'm up to my eyeballs in it because this is the sector that I work in. But it's really helping me forced me to step back and look at things objectively. And that has been a real blessing because it's helping me see other pathways or other solutions or other ways of looking at this challenge that I may not have seen before. And so I'm really appreciative of that. When it comes to the the heavy duty kind of research around risk, but to be honest with you, it's giving me an excuse to read all of the books that I've been wanting to read around the history of risk and different ways of doing it that I just could never justify. It. For example, I found a book written in 1921. It was wow. a pamphlet about risk and investment, and it was how to manage risk when it comes to investments in the stock market or financial systems. But it's really one of the first. Books or, or pamphlets or treatises that was written that sort of formalized the concept of risk. Looking at it that way, being able to come at it from the history. One of the other things that I'm doing, which everyone always laughs, but I see is I, I'm planning on writing a paper about why we as humans are interested in risk management. Why are we interested in trying to foresee the future? And so I'm going to be doing an analysis on things like tarot cards and rune stones and palm reading and saying, where does that, because we're trying to tell the future, we're trying to predict the future. Pharaohs were trying using Noah's, but what is our push to do that? And how are some of our modern tools no better than palm reading? And the risk matrix is one of them, but we're still driven to try and do that so that Mm -hmm. we can control the future.
1: Brilliant. I'm so jealous of you being a doctoral candidate because I know what you mean. You get the excuse to really dig deep in things that you want, you're want. you curious about. But who has time to read about 1920s risk management? As I, I also have a PhD. Well, I have a PhD. And I'm going to tell you, it's much more fun being a doctoral candidate than it is having a PhD. Having a PhD is nothing but Working towards it is a lot of fun. I'm going to come full circle with our conversation here because my PhD was in law and war. I was also curious about the big problems. I was like, how does law help with war, the big problems? And it was actually very much centred on Rwanda in the 1990s and the Yugoslav Wars. I've got a question for you, which is very off topic. (laughs) But you're there and you're going to be living there and you don't have to answer it today. But I would love to know your take on what is the role of lawyers and compliance professionals like yourself in restorative justice and breaking the cycle of vengeance? Just a small question to end with. Yeah, this is a small question to end with.
0: (laughs) Look, I think like a lot of things that we talked about today, when it comes to breaking the cycles of vengeance and restorative justice, it comes down to people and it comes down to their points of view. And objective and risk management is exactly the same way. we get the right people around the table, the answer is gonna come out. It's going to be hard for what the the topics that you're talking about. It's a lot harder because we're not just talking about achieving a project objective. We're talking about people's lives. We're talking about uh, affecting their family members. We're talking about displacement. We're talking about death. We're talking about violence. These things really need really strong facilitation and really strong commitments in order to be successful. I don't know about compliance in this area, but I think lawyers do have a role in this because we're often looked at to draft some of these governing documents and things like that. And I think if you look at the history of post-conflict environments, some of these governing documents that are put in place are drafted by the conquering powers, and they're not very durable. They're not very sustainable. They don't have the right parties around the table. Maybe they have the right parties from the warring factions or things like that, but civil society is left out. Women are left out, right? Representatives from underrecognized communities are left out. And therefore, it's not really durable and it's not really representative. So I think as lawyers in that particular area, we have an obligation to keep our eyes open and to be scanning and to ensure that, or advocate to ensure that, everybody, all of the potential stakeholders are at the table. And in order to be able to identify all the potential stakeholders, we need to talk to people. We can't just be sitting behind our desk writing an international agreement and making sure that we have the right amendment clauses and marking and branding clauses or whatever it is in there. It's really about who needs to be there and whose voice has to be heard. I think that's one of the things about being a lawyer too, is we're here to, In human rights law, give voice to the voiceless. Mm -hmm. Even if you're a litigator, right? You're there to provide your client's voice in front of this court of law and and to make sure that their voice and their position is heard. And so I think that lawyers have a real big part in that. So here in Rwanda, for example, this year is the 30th anniversary of the genocide. And everyone goes, what happened 30 years ago? I can't believe it. And one of the things that's so interesting to me with the Rwandans that I meet here is if you think about it, 30 years ago. So people who are in their early, mid-late 20s, that's not their history. They weren't even born. It's their parents' history. It's their aunts and uncles' history. It's their grandparents' history. They've heard it. It's their country's history. It's part of their the the fabric of where they've grown up but it's not their history and they are eager to recognize it but leave it behind and so what you see here in rwanda right now is so much innovation and so much passion and so many young people who want to make their country better and want to improve their country and are proud of their country and want people to come to their country and that's a really amazing thing to see 30 years on from post conflicts in the country
1: Wow, I threw a curveball, but you, you delivered. delivered. I mean, look, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sum that up. Firstly, you're making me feel, oh, was it really 30 years ago? <laughs> Gosh, I know. Secondly, I think, like I was going to say it's really not about us. It's, uh, there's a, you, you've talked about the objectives and the wishes and the desires of the current population of Rwanda and the fact that there might be functionaries, lawyers, governments writing rules that will impact those lives without bringing them in the room. And that's really what I'm hearing from you today. Like the thrust of what you're saying is get the right people in the room. I want to really end with what your mum said, right? Speak to the patient enough. He or she will diagnose themselves. And if the doctors are in another room writing the the history and the scripts without speaking to the patient, they're not gonna get, they're not gonna be effective. And you also mentioned that other thing, the ego thing I'm going to bring up is it really isn't about us as lawyers, right? I used to teach baby barristers in, in England and they would be very much like we talked about in the podcast at the beginning. They'd be thinking about how they showed up and they just remembered they were there with a client whose livelihood or liberty was on the line. They would act and show up differently. They wouldn't be worried about their ums and ours. They would be thinking about the objective. And again, let's go back to objective-centered risk management can save lives. <laughs> you really yeah, can. It's, it's
0: objective-centered and it's also viewing yourself as a facilitator
1: yes you're like a midwife
0: right like we're we are not the ones with the I when you march in there and you're like I'm a risk officer and so you have to listen to me like, we, we don't know crap about crap right we know enough about our area we're, we're the facilitator to bring the best out of these different parts of the organization so that the organization can do its best for whatever the purpose
1: is I love it with that we're gonna have to stop and I'm just so grateful to you for spending time with me I am enthralled as I knew I would be. Reach out to Sabrina if you've got any questions about objective-centred risk management in the third sector. Check out her uh, podcast. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for spending time with me today. And we'll be in touch for more on this. (laughs) I hope so, Emma. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been a wonderful
0: conversation. Thank you.